This podcast is intended for a mature audience. If you are under 18 years of age, please come back when you are to enjoy our content. The information, opinions, and stories shared in this podcast are for educational purposes only. The content creators are not certified sex therapists or counselors and rely heavily on experts. Come explore, learn, and grow with us. Hello, Alex. Hi, Ellie. I hope you've had a fantastic week. It's been busy, but it's been busy in a very good way, so I'm not going to complain. How about yourself? Excellent, excellent. The temps are rising here. Today we had a very warm day, which means we're about to have a massive snowstorm, and the weather's going to kick our ass. (laughs) Oh, you sound very excited about that, and I remember living up north and shoveling cars out of ice and snow and then more ice and more snow and absolutely hating that. So (laughs) it's a love hate relationship. I love winter, but I hate the snowstorms. I mean, you, you can't really have winter without the snow or you could do what, what I do here where I am and winter is just a little bit of rain. No thanks. No thanks. But let's move past weather. What are we going to talk about today? We teased this a little bit. And um, I thought that we should talk about books. Because books are really portals to another world. You're really taking your imagination. You're trying to give someone the right prompts to hopefully see what you see. Kind of... uh, Take a look at a world that exists inside your mind. And sometimes in that world, there are a lot of people who have a lot of sex. And sometimes it's very kinky and taboo, but it's very fun and very interesting, even if it seems absolutely impossible. I like it. Well, in planning for this episode, I went to my followers on Instagram and one of them, notes to my lover, suggested that I look at some work by Erica Lust. So I did. But I needed to point out to him that she's a little more porn-esque and visual and that blogs didn't really qualify for what we were thinking for the show today. So then he reminisced and he shared very fondly about penthouse letters. And once again, I had to expand on what our vision was for this episode, that short stories and novels were more in line with today's conversation. And maybe we needed to separate episodes in order to have those conversations, you know, like either about porn or tribute to things like penthouse letters. What do you think? Well, I would say that a lot of the penthouse letters are fiction and creative writing. Although, although I'm going to venture to guess that the ones that were actually real are probably the ones that we'd never in a million years suspect were real because the cardinal rule that I learned in grad school is that humans are restricted by their imagination and their experience. Reality is not constrained by anything but the laws of physics. True. And I had to go to do my research at, at a website called sexualdiversity.org to read that 
There's a reason erotica has existed since civilization began, that nearly every culture has utilized sexual depictions in one way or another. I think I can actually do you one better because there are ritualistic depictions of sex on caves. So in the, in the same caves where you see this ritualized scenes of the hunt and the tributes and the sacrifice to whatever gods were first created in the human imagination, there are depictions of people having sex by what appears to be moonlight, which actually, interestingly enough, that's where the theory that uh, women's periods are 28 days comes from, that it's supposed to be with the cycles of the moon because a lot of humans were either nocturnal or that really fancy word for really active during dawn and dusk that I cannot remember for the life of me, and I will probably mispronounce a million times. But we were kind of like cats and coyotes. Like we during the day we kind of took a nap, but then you know we we're really active in in between. Okay, I didn't think we'd go to speaking about women's cycles. Can we? Let's get back onto erotica. What was the first known descriptions of sexual adventures in works of art? What do you so, know, Alex? So the first one that we have found and been able to verify and have been able to translate is the Epic of Gilgamesh. It's the first fictional writing or, well, mythological and religious writing that mentions sexual adventures of a protagonist. Now, the different pieces of the Epic of Gilgamesh date to different times. Uh, the oldest were about 4,000 years old and the most recent about 3,000 years old. So, you know, pretty significantly far in, far in the past. And oddly enough, one of the first jokes that we have, some one of the oldest jokes that we've been able to verify as like an actual joke that was existed and was told uh, many, many years ago, somewhere in the time of the Epic of Gilgamesh involved a pharaoh going down the river now and being flashed by beautiful young women. So how do we find proof from something 4,000 years ago, though? Like, how is this Epic of Gilgamesh? How is it even discovered? That's actually kind of fascinating. You could do an entire episode about that, but we're not going to do that. The short version, the relatively Cole's short. And, notes. <laughs> yeah, the relatively short and simplified version here is that a lot of times we find stuff that people either forgot or people have thrown away. Basically, we dig through people's trash and pieces and stuff that has collapsed and stuff that has been destroyed in natural disasters or wars and just kind of left there. And we find these pieces of writing, pottery, just these general structures, and we start piecing these things together. And then when it comes to translating them, a lot of times it's very difficult to translate them, and it takes a lot of time. So, for example, the Epic of Gilgamesh is Mesopotamian, and it was written in cuneiform. And cuneiform took thousands of years to translate for the simple reason that we didn't really have a good basis for it. But we discovered that there's something called Persian cuneiform in the 1800s. And that Persian cuneiform also matches up with ancient Egyptian, which we had translated by then thanks to the Rosetta Stone. Then we were able to start verifying like, oh, wait, okay, so we can actually now translate and read this. So basically the, the way that you do this is you dig through people's trash or their lost treasure. And then you start looking at other relics where you have 
both languages or even more than that written side by side. And ideally, you know, one of the languages and you can now start using those rules to decipher what's written there. And sometimes they get so involved that they use supercomputers and the same tactics that you would use for breaking ciphers and codes. So it gets really elaborate. There's an entire area of study and expertise where that's people, that's all that people do. They try to translate ancient languages, figure out what they sounded like, what was written in them. And it's pretty fascinating because there's so much knowledge that we realize that we have lost because it's entirely possible that writing is actually 10,000 years old. There are scripts dating 8,000 years ago. We don't quite know where to read them, but it, they were found in southern Ukraine and in parts of the Middle East that are they are so ancient. We have no idea what they say, but we know that they were writing because they repeat in the same patterns as writing does. So it's very possible that a lot of those contained depictions of what would consider erotica or sex or sexual adventures. Something a little bit more recent that we are much better familiar with is actually the Bible. The oh, Song yes. of Songs, the Song of Songs in the Bible is basically an erotic poem. It's an ode to sex that was written by Jewish scholars and priests somewhere around the third century BC. Now, I think you're going to make someone very upset, think, you know, saying that the Bible's just full of erotic poetry. Well, it's not full of erotic poetry, but it does have that. And I mean, the, the, the Old Testament, especially Exodus and Genesis, has a lot of pretty graphic depictions of sex and people getting drunk and having non-consensual non relationships. So, you know, it has some very interesting stuff that they tend to omit in Bible school. Uh-huh, especially with the lens of kink put on, right? Up for some interpretation. Well, why don't we actually move on and talk about the Roman Empire? You think they were a little kinky, hey? So this is that TikTok trick where you ask a guy how often he thinks about the Roman Empire, isn't it? <laughs> yep. <laughs> okay. So I haven't actually thought that much about the Roman Empire. I, I'm ashamed. I, I, I'm ashamed about that. But uh, I there is a text in the Roman Empire called the Ars Armatoria or the Art of Love. And that was kind of like their guide to seduction and sex. But the interesting thing about Romans is that they were outward, relatively sexually prudish. They were basically kind of a society of bureaucrat at, bureaucrats at higher ranks. And they were very prim and proper on the outside, but on the inside, they tolerated quite a bit. They had brothels and it was totally accepted for people to go to brothels. Uh, the other thing they accepted is homosexuality. But as long as you were not a bottom, for some reason, they were really they were not they were all about power and domination. And it gets really it gets really complicated. So and I am not equipped to talk about that further. At that point, you need to bring in a historian. <laughs> Well, we don't need a historian at this moment. We're just giving our listeners just a little bit of history. Let's fast forward into more current times. What about more current English literature? So we don't exactly know what was published during medieval times because it was very heavily censored and it was difficult to get a hold of. But around 1748, when we get into the Age of Enlightenment, we see John Cleland's Fanny Hill. And it's considered the first erotic novel in English literature that has survived. And it was, again, pr 
pretty heavily censored, but people could still get their hands on it. And they loved it because it was, you know, kind of an erotic comedy. And people were like, oh, this is awesome. This is funny and sexy. And then when we start getting into modern times, when we're talking about contemporary English literature, that's when we end up with Henry Miller's Topic of Cancer, which was written in 1934 and details his nomadic life in Paris. Now, to give you an idea what this book is about, he actually wanted to call it Crazy Cock when he wrote it at first. <laughs> he thought I better like of it. Yeah, it was published in France, but you could not buy it in the United States until 1961. There were all these obscenity hearings and people were very upset about this book because, again, it's someone chronicling, you know, how they went around France having all the sex and adventures that they wanted. But in 1961, it, it comes out and people started buying it and it becomes essentially kind of like a classic work of literature because it is one of those first works that is mainstream and people are like, oh, well, people can actually now fucking books. That's either the decay of moral society or because it was 1961, a sign of the arrival of the sexual revolution. Well, you're talking classics. Can we jump forward to like absolute most current times and talk about a book that's been in the news? It has shaped our economy in terms of increasing the sales of sex toys, and it's been made into a movie. When I think about R-rated books and or movies, I think of Fifty Shades of Grey. Oh, yeah, that's a, that's a bit of a controversial <laughs> book. Now, when I say controversial book, yes, obviously for a lot of people, it was scandalous and controversial that someone actually published this. But for people in literary circles, it was very controversial because it started off as Twilight fan fiction. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And and by the way, if you've never seen E.L. James, like a picture of E.L. James, she looks like Tina from Bob's Burgers, all grown up. <laughs> Except I, I except I would say that uh, that Tina's friend erotic friend fiction is funnier and more interesting. Her friend uh, and then erotic friend fiction. It's um if you, if you don't know the show Bob's Burgers, I would invite you to look that up. It's um I'm putting it on my list. Yeah, there's there's a character there who is a girl named Tina. She is very very horny and she's going through puberty and like a lot of puberty and she writes erotic fan fiction but it features her friends therefore erotic friend fiction gotcha thank you for clarifying that um well i know that uh el james's books has been published in 50 languages and they've sold more than 165 million copies but yet when sexualdiversity.org did a survey not that many people answered yes that they've even read it. Have you read it, Alex? I have not read it. I have read an excerpt from it that was forwarded to me by a friend. And I was like, nope, 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 done, done. That's not that's not happening. Um, and also, I know a number of people who are really into the BDSM community who are in who are heavily involved in the BDSM community. And they basically say that this book is rather dangerous because it doesn't have the appropriate research to allow people how to play safe. Well, I know I was interested in BDSM and I was recommended by friends who had got sucked into this all and thought that it was just great. So I got myself, I borrowed a copy from a friend. I didn't even get through the first chapter. I didn't like the writing. 
the mechanics of the writing even. It wasn't even so much about the content for me because then when it was made into a movie, the content kind of grabbed me. It really did. I'll be honest. I was definitely more interested in the movie, but um, I think it's because I like romance slash erotica and I don't mind it getting into the kind of the dirty, darker side. And uh, the website, sexualdiversity.org, they actually said that those categories make $1.44 billion a year. That's the highest amount of any book genre when compared to other genres. That's a 40% market share. I'm not surprised by that because, I mean, how long have you seen Harlequin books out there and how many of them have you seen? There's no way that this is a tiny market Mm -hmm. if just one imprint is basically a household name for romance and erotica. Yeah, but yet the survey that was done on people, 23% said yes, they had read it, but 77% said no. Why do you think that is, Alex? I think, well, honestly, I think that for a lot of people, there's still so much better literature because it is such a massive catalog of stuff. If you really want to get into erotic literature, there's just so much of it. And so much of it is written by people who are so much more talented and have so much more experience with it that they they just have so many choices where they're, they're truly spoiled for choice, which is a good thing, which is, which is absolutely a good thing. And I will Mm -hmm. say right now that haven't written things uh, professionally and, and haven't been paid for them. I'm, I'm a writer in the Stephen King's definition of a, of a writer. I have written something, received a check for it, and used that check to pay a bill. So um, I love his definition of a writer, by the way. His, his view on it is, is so refreshing and so simple and so straightforward for someone who would think would be very you know up there and stuck up. But it takes a lot of talent to compete with porn. Like Mm -hmm. uh, that's everywhere on the internet. It takes a lot of talent to describe sex in a way that gets people excited just by words. And uh, that I I respect that tremendously. So when I say that people are spoiled for choice and this stuff is everywhere, I say that with love and admiration, like, holy crap, go, go erotic authors. Yeah. Well, not everybody liked Shades of Grey and not everybody thought that uh, E.L. James was a fabulous erotic author. I mean, Fifty Shades of Grey was actually declared pornographic by the Florida Library. Did you know that? It's Florida. They're special. They and are. I say that as, and I say that as an American, they are, <laughs> they're very special. We have a lot of jokes about Florida here. Well, I don't know where he was from, but a reviewer named Don wrote in a review that I'm just going to say ripped it apart. He called the writing abysmal, but then he went and he stood on this soapbox where he, instead of talking about the actual work of fiction, he went on and on and on and on about sensationalism and society and yeah, like it's just a book, Dawn. It it really is. But I think that for some people, they really are very involved in the politics of it. And they want to seem they're also very progressive and like defenders of women's honor. And And here's the thing. I am very sympathetic to the fact that women don't have it easy. Mm-hmm. And there are definitely struggles that women have to deal with. 
And I appreciate that and I respect that. And I definitely try to show up and, and be an ally for women whenever I can. At the same time, I feel like there's also this veer into paternalism, like the anti-port crusaders like uh, Andrea Dworkin and far-right uh, religious prudes have this paternalistic view that anything sexual is always detrimental to women. Even when women say, we want this, we consent to this, we love this, where we have a safe word, we get aftercare, we trust our partners, we've set boundaries, my partners have never violated those boundaries. We 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 love this. We spend yeah, our own money on it. she signed Christian Gray's little contract, right? Like in this work of fiction, she was all on board. I feel like in some of these politics, especially when it comes to social justice, we we can't veer into the paternalism where we tell people this is what's good for you. We just need to be very careful about making sure that that no one is telling people this is, you know, your job is to do this. This is how you need to live your life. We need to give people options. And and if we go veer very hard the other way, we risk running the same error. Yeah. Well, and when you say options, there's lots of options out there, you said, for erotic fiction. And this is just one example. But Works of fiction don't always have to have the purpose of delivering some big societal message. What do you and think? I, and and I also think that sometimes work of fiction, a work of fiction does not exist to be liked. Some mm -hmm. of the stuff that has stuck with me for a long time are things that I found a little gut-wrenching, challenging, things that mm -hmm. made me think. I, I I really do think that works of fiction that are good are about making you think, not about making you like it. Maybe they make you like it because it's challenging, because you don't agree, because you wrestle with some things. And actually, I want to talk about that in the context of the Soviet Union, because I want to give a, a different example. So okay. when we talk about people having this very patronizing approach to others, to people who make their own choices and are adults and can make their own decisions, we got to talk about the Soviet Union and the fact that it wasn't this orgy of atheistic free-for-all hedonism like the John Birch Society would tell you in their fever dream conspiracy theories. It was a very conservative country in many, many ways, especially when it came to sexuality. Like sex ed wasn't taught. Anything that was considered even remotely sexual was just completely censored and banned and, and people – would come after it. And when I say people, I mean the secret police would come after it. Like it was, it was rough. And in that environment, there's an author, Eduard Topol, Edward Topol. That's how it sounds. And that's how, that's how it sounds in English. Yep. Who was cranking out literature that was very explicit and very brutal. And one of those examples is a book called Russia in Bed. Now it, it was written in 1981. And this is at that beginning of the end for the Soviet Union. This is kind of at the beginning of glossness, transparency, and at this beginning of, of this breakdown in this hard censorship. But even then, you couldn't actually get your hands on it. People were reading it in like 86 and 87 in pirated copies that they got from Europe. So they would go somewhere in Holland or they would go somewhere in like East Germany and they would be able to get their hands on that book. And it wasn't really in print until 1993. And that book is incredibly explicit. And 
I I want to leave it at that for now. But mm-hmm. the idea of it is that that even in these really repressive societies, people still want to create this because they want to talk about it, because they see it, because it's on their minds. And even if you try to censor it, this kind of expression will still come out. Interesting. Well, this is always the the segment or the part of our uh, episode that we usually talk about the psychology behind the kink. So the kink is seeking out fiction that just takes romance and love just <clears throat> a little notched up, right, into that erotic realm. And I know my favorite quote is that books are a dream that you hold in your hands. Well, sometimes and, you hold something else in your hands too while you're reading them, but and it might that. result in a wet dream, right? <laughs> you know, this is going to sound really weird, but I have never had a wet dream in my entire life. My brain is such a prude. I know it doesn't sound right, but yeah, that's interesting. And now you, and now you know the weirdest thing about me. <laughs> Yes, I love it. I love it when you share. Well, I'll share a little more and tell you something. At please, bedtime, please. <clears throat> at bedtime, I often read out loud erotica to my hubby because I believe of the magical effect of words and visualization for arousal, but also relaxation. So it's our kinky version of bedtime stories that we will find light reading short stories with a side of seduction, maybe some mystery or even historical romance, but there's always got to be kink. You know, a little bit of face fucking, fingering, sexual escapades, and lots of naked people in our stories. And she huffed and she puffed and she blew. (laughs) No, no, wait, hold on. What the hell? Oh, that was, that was good. (laughs) Sometimes, oh, sometimes you get me going. <laughs> oh. <laughs> you okay? Yeah. <laughs> I got to get back on. I got to look. Oh, I can't even see. I'm laughing so hard. Oh. <laughs> I think, okay, I think that we should probably cover, okay, so so erotica is a huge umbrella term. Yes. But there's got to be like this master list of subgenres. Yes, and I mean, there's got to be like, because and, and also like there's so many I've heard of all sorts of things like, you know, urban fantasy romance, dark mafia, urban romance and uh, vampire medieval fantasy, et cetera. Like there's so many of them. Tentacle porn. <laughs> well, that's Japan. <laughs> OK, but it's in there. And you know what? If you go to websites like Literata literotica.com, Wattpad, and Medium. These are all great places to find exactly what you're looking for. Did you know you could even find something called Potterotica? Um, yeah, unfortunately, I have heard of that. Explain for our listeners. Do I have to? Yep. Okay. I didn't know what it was. Come on. It is um, essentially uh, erotica Erotic fan fiction set in the Harry Potter universe. Literally, Potter erotica. Oh my god. Okay. Yeah. yeah I get it. Right now. there in the name. Yeah. Right there. Is that it's exactly is that what that it is. Whole thing of fan fiction, like yeah. anybody who's fan of pot. Okay. Yeah. Oh, why would someone do that to Harry Potter? Oh. Some people are just really horny, and <laughs> you can't stop them. Yeah, well, I I looked it up a little bit, and I only thing I found was a podcast 
and I might actually put it on my to listen to list. You know, actually, though, I, I do have to I do have to mention that fan fiction is a way that some authors get started because there's there are authors that have now published books in their own right, but they've actually begun as professional fan fiction writers for even things like game franchises. There's people who write Warhammer 40,000 books. There's people who write Star Wars books. So they're already creating these stories in an established universe. They're essentially writing fan fiction, but then they built that name, they build that reputation, they get those book sales and they can go to an agent and say, hey, I wanna tell a story of my own. Here's my track record. And then they get their shot. We're not knocking fan fiction unless no. it's Twilight fan fiction, like, you know, <laughs> yes, Fifty Shades yes. of Grey. But, <laughs> but there are fan fiction authors who go on to actually become authors that may very well be on your bookshelf soon and who are really talented people honing their craft because it's all about that, that refinement. And I, I know that most of the writing that I've done for full disclosure is nonfiction, but even then... I probably wrote millions of horrible words. And when I look at some of the older articles that I forgot to delete, I hate them. <laughs> well, talk about, when you talk about someone who shouldn't be writing, I want to talk about this book that crossed my DMs in FetLife. It's, oh, uh, is that the is that the book that you sent? Oh my God. Okay. I sent you All an right. excerpt. Yeah, I sent you an excerpt and I never called up the excerpt. So I'm going to call that back up as I'm introducing the author, <clears throat> Hannah Grace. Now, when I said Hannah Grace's name as an author around my child who is under 18, she knew who Hannah Grace was right away. And she looked at me and she said, oh, icebreaker. Yeah, I know the book. So I Googled and found out that this Hannah Grace is a 30-year-old romance author from England the owner of her books is now a company called Atria, and they market her books as new, adult, and contemporary. So right away, I'm wondering, why does my underage daughter know of this adult or contemporary writing? And I had to calm myself and realize that when I was 15 and 16, I was getting my hands on things I shouldn't have as well. Like you mentioned, Harlequin Romance. Well, I mean, when I was 13 and 14, I had unrestricted internet access and I was a pretty precocious child with computers and I could build my own browser to do whatever I wanted and not necessarily get tracked. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So the follower on FetLife was really upset because this adult contemporary novel got in the hands of his 14-year-old daughter her hands and all her friends because on the front of the cover it is a picture of a figure skater and a hockey player and they look about 15 16 and as you read the book you realize it is it is a young love kind of story and if you look at the back cover it says that it's basically about a girl and a guy who just kind of hit it off and you know there's innuendos but mostly it's about dating right it's it, it looks like something you would see on the Christmas card. Yes. Yeah, it definitely looks I'm looking at it right now and it, and it definitely looks like a teenager could have hand drawn this with a bunch of pencil crayons. Uh, it looks like something with, that would definitely be in the young adult section, but yet it's not. It's in the adult section. Actually, if you go to a local bookstore here in Canada, you'll find it right now on display with all the Valentine's Day stuff. But the cover throws you right off. So thankfully, this 
uh, follower, he opened it before he gave it to his daughter. And he read this part. Can I read it to you? Of course. He helps me strip him down until he's standing in front of me in only his boxers, which is the moment I realize there is absolutely no way it'll fit in my mouth or anywhere else for that matter. Nate is smirking as I sit gobsmacked. I shake it off because I'm not a quitter and I'm certainly not going to give him the satisfaction of telling him how big it is. I've been tested recently and there's nothing to report, but I can put on a condom if you want me to, he asks as I run my hands up the front of his thighs. I shake my head and I watch as he takes himself out, tightening his fist around the base and pumping a few times. He bends down and kisses me on the forehead. Tell me to stop if I'm too rough, okay? One hand holds the back of my neck and the other guides his hard dick toward me. Stick your tongue out, baby. I do as I'm told, much to his immediate delight, swirling it against the head, tasting the heady, salty taste on my tongue. And I'm going to stop there. Because wouldn't you say that that is the depiction of what we now know as a 16-year-old being face-fucked or throat-fucked? Wouldn't you? Wouldn't you say? I mean, yes, I would say. And and the thing is, we try to be really sex positive. And I think we're we're pretty sex positive people. But at the same time, we also very much believe in developmentally appropriate and contextually appropriate and consensually appropriate access yeah. Yeah, to I mean, adult materials. I think that definitely like 15, 16 year olds are going to be very curious about that stuff. And I think they should be able to consume it, but in a but in a setting where they understand that they can discuss with an adult who can answer their questions because they're going to have a lot of questions because the alternative in which we have tried in many places around the world with a fantastically horrific failure rate They'll go out and experiment by themselves. They won't know mm -hmm. what they're doing and they'll catch something or they'll get pregnant and that's how it's going to end. Instead, we also know, again, from many, many studies, if we give kids developmentally appropriate sexual materials and explain and coach and answer their questions and give them a realistic idea of the risk and things that they can use to prevent that risk, it first of all delays the age of first sexual content. Uh, contact. Second of all, it improves their mental health. It dec significantly decreases rates of teen pregnancy and significantly improves the economic future because they don't have kids too young before they can handle them and they can complete their school and they can complete their education. They can do careful family planning and have mm -hmm. kids when they want with people they want. And And it's just that misconception that Knowing about sex and enjoying sex means you're just going to have tons and tons of partners. No, it just means and or means you're going to have tons of sex. No, you're just going to enjoy the sex that you have. And it's going to depend on your libido and whatnot. But you will be safe and sane and take fewer risks. So that, that was my rant. But the reason why I'm, I went into this rant is because all of this is is backed by mounts of research. Mm -hmm. But we still have politicians who will slam their head into the wall. But that still brings us back to the point where a bookstore 
and looking like a young adult book is not does not beat the criteria for no. appropriate context. Well, yeah, and I don't even know if these bookstores crack open the book and check out the inside or if they just see what the editor put on there or the publisher puts on there and the category they say to file it in and so they just do but the cover is misleading and I think it's the author who chooses the words inside but also the cover that has a responsibility to know their audience and market it to their actually intended readers so I think at this point you and I got to stop our rant we need to bring in a real author into this conversation what do you say Ellie are you saying we need to bring in a professional yep yep do we have a professional So yes, I do have someone in mind. I name dropped a few authors before and I chose one. I'd like to bring in erotica smut author Logan Black. He's the author of the Danny Diamond erotic mystery series that includes Body Count, Money Shot, its prequel, which is coming out right now this week, The Black Noel. My favorite story, The Kitty That Got the Cream, and Sticky Fingers. He can also be found on Medium, having lots of fun there in his own account, but also as part of a collaborative series of MFM threesome short stories done by Crushed Publications and the Ranch Hand Agency. You can check him out online. We welcome him here with us today. Hello, Logan. Welcome to the show. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. Oh, I'm excited. For- I'm I'm like a young teenager, like at her favorite rock concert, seeing her favorite <laughs> rock star. Well, you need to get out more because uh, <laughs> this is, you know, I'm, I, I am just a, a, a normal guy who slings smut on the side. And, uh, you know, but I do uh, appreciate your patronage. Uh, you're probably one of my first um, super fans, maybe my only super fan uh, in this whole like smut writing thing. So... You know, thank you for that and for the opportunity to come and talk about it a little bit. Hey, here we are very pro-smut and smut activities, and that's the whole topic of this episode. So we're we're delighted to, to have you on. We've got some burning questions here. The first one is, I want to know, when did your writing go from fiction to smut? Was there a pivotal moment? Uh, I think it was in 2008. Um, so it was a while ago. I've been writing since I was probably 13, but like, when did I actually have the, the urge to like write a dirty story or something like that? If I said like when I actually started writing the the story, it was 2008, 2008. But before that, you know, in the infancy of the internet, you had like chat rooms like IRC and AOL and these other places and things like that. So, you know, like uh, cybersex was a new thing and, um, Probably got into that stuff like way too fucking young. Uh, didn't know what the hell I was doing, but kind of like figured it out along the way. So like, I think like in terms of like writing something sexy or, um, you know, sexual, that was probably like the impetus for like, okay, like there's something here. It was, like I said, 2008. I, uh, after after college, I went through a big um kick where i was super into noir fiction and i was reading everything by raymond chandler everything by dashiell hammett i was reading uh james elroy and um you know some of the 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 newer neo-noir stuff too i was actually reading the maltese falcon and i'd never seen the the movie before i watched the book uh the the old one with um with humphrey bogart 
having read the book, I was actually really, really impressed with how much sex there was in this book from like the 1930s. Uh, if you, you know, I watched the movie later, the movie didn't have that much in it. A lot of it was um, intimated. It wasn't, and it was, was very peachy, obviously, for the time, because I think that was in the 40s. But I said to myself, you know, this could actually be an erotic novel if you just didn't close the, the, the bedroom door before each of the places where the sex scenes were, or you added a couple here and in, in the middle. And so my idea was, well, what if I actually did an erotic retelling of it to begin with? That was the first attempt. And, and, and that was the book that came out, became my first novel, which is The Money Shot, uh, which is the one that, that, that you read, Ellie, uh, yeah. first before you reached out to me it kind of became its own thing because it was like this this odyssey i'd written fan fiction novels before and other like just kind of fucking around types of things not really serious writing and that was the first time that i had um tried to write a novel seriously and it took me a, a whole freaking seven years and some of it was like stopping the starting and you know backing up and regrouping and things like that but um before that point i I'd, I'd never really read a whole lot of erotica um so i was figuring out the voice and how to tell the thing um and then what people would be into and partially what was i what i was into because i started this thing in my 20s it, it, it like i said part of the reason it took seven years is I, there were all these fucking things that i was trying to figure out along the way um and and, and so when i look back like my one of my introductions to, to erotica was um some of these I, when I was, when we were growing up, we called them fuck books, but like these like little gas station or truck stop, like dirty stories, right? They come in like a little paperback or something like that. Um, I'm and, from Canada, Logan. I don't know what you're talking about. You got to okay. expand a little. Yeah. So, so it started in the sixties. And so I'm, I'm going really far afield here. So I apologize. Um, it started in, in, in the 60s when some of the obscenity laws were struck down that allowed pornography to be legal, right? And so one of the things that they started doing, uh, some of them were imported from the UK and Scandinavia. Some of them, were, a lot of them were just written and in, in, in published in California or New York. But they were these maybe 30 to 40,000 word novels um, that were cheaply printed and had these lurid covers and stuff like that. And it was like really, really bad erotica. Um, and I actually talked to a guy who, when he was in college, he wrote these. Um, and it was like, they would pay you good money. That's like 300 bucks for 30,000 words or something like that. Um, and at the time it was really, really good money. But they would, um, you know, pay people to just churn through these, these dirty stories. And it was like, how much sex can you fit into it? The writing was pretty horrible. Uh, occasionally, you'd, you'd find one that where the writing was pretty decent. But, you know, for the most part, like, that was kind of my introduction to erotica was written porn. You know, it wasn't anything that was super um, um, highbrow, like Anais Nin or, you know, the, mm. the, 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 those types of things. <laughs> you know, a large part of my figuring out you know, what I was doing was also uh, shopping the the manuscript around. Um, I probably had like 20 different beta readers. I went through 10 different revisions. Um, it was just a really, really long process, um, but learned a lot of stuff. Very formative to kind of how I write erotica, because I feel like um, 
I, I write it in a way that, that isn't typical for a lot of folks within the industry or the genre, right? Because I'm, most of my stuff is, is writing um, a combination of hard-boiled fiction and erotica at the same time. So trying to like twist those two together into something that makes any fucking sense um, and that people would actually want to read is, has been uh, challenging. And then also the, the aspect of the um, uh, historical fiction too because it because it's set in 1940 uh 1946 there was a lot of research that went into that too so i mean that's kind of a long answer to a very short question uh but that that for me i think was kind of the the evolution that took me from uh you know where i was before into writing what i'm writing now um and i'm kind of like on the train and i don't want to get off can you expand a little bit when you say you're developing your craft are there any tips or tricks or suggestions that you've learned those do's and don'ts maybe if there is someone who is just on the edge on the precipice of taking their adult fiction and making it a little kinkier how do you find that bravery and are there things you shouldn't do when you're attempting uh, to slip into erotica yeah so uh, the thing that I would say is that the worst thing that anybody can tell you is no within that process, right? So um, just if you're nervous about sharing it, um, I would say uh, get a pen name because Logan Black's not my real name. That that helps a lot. Uh, but the, the community out there, I've actually found to be really, really welcoming. And I've gotten tons of boosts from other authors that are out there. Uh, some of whom are just absolutely slaying it with, you know, thousands in sales every single month, tens of thousands in some cases. So there are some people who are um, really knowledgeable and, and they give their knowledge freely. So um, communities like Reddit, the writer community on Twitter, Literotica is another one. That one's uh, more, you know, folks who are just kind of slinging their stuff up there and, and it's free and, and, you know, it's more of a free for all uh, with, with the, um, those are really good resources, but you know, no one person is an island, even when it comes to writing smut. And um, you're only as good as the people that you surround yourself with. So that that would be my recommendation for how to get into it. The other thing is just fucking start. You know, even if it sucks, right? You could if you if you get a start, you can make it better. Having a base to work from is better than having nothing and being scared that you're going to suck. Um, so, so that, th those are, those are my two pieces of advice for, for starting. Um, and then the rest of it's just a learning process. It's iterative. You just keep on, you know, doing it over and over and over again and, you know, learning, uh, things along the way. When it comes to like, you know, do's and don'ts, um, I, I think as writers, sometimes we are our, uh, best friend and worst enemy at the same time, because we get kind of tunnel vision on certain things. What I'm trying to say is you should always, always have other people look at your fiction and give opinions yeah. on it, right? And, and I even like, if it's, I like yeah. the interactions. Sorry, I like the interactions you have on Twitter. I watch your interactions <laughs> and I see you, and I have seen you over the last year, build a community. And then I see you on Medium and I see you tossing things out there and just getting a feel for what people like and what they want um, are your DMs blowing up? Like, do people really give you feedback? Do you get the 1%? Yeah. You know, I get some, I get some like, it, so the, in, within the erotica writing community, a lot of the, uh, the readers are writers too. 
And so you're getting you're getting feedback from from folks who are doing the same thing as you. And so it can be really helpful um, in, in terms of the writer, I'm uh, sorry, reader feedback, I get far less of folks who are just consumers of it. That being said, you know, with, you know, reviews and ratings and things like that, you do get a little bit of information, but I, I'll tell you what, I, I honestly, um, you know, you hear all these horror stories about reviewers just completely murdering your books and things like that through reviews. I haven't had any of that. I've actually kind of wanted some of it to like beat me up, tell me how I suck, you know, like uh, make me better. And up until this point, I haven't. So, I mean, who knows? Maybe that's a challenge. If you're, if somebody's listening, you can, you know, go and like eviscerate me uh, and tell me how I'm awful. But, uh, you know, I, I, I do believe that we can never really get better if we don't get honest opinions from folks. Um, and, and editing is another big thing too. That's something that within like erotica itself um, is, it gets more of a pass, I think. Uh, because you know, folks want to get to the like, like the bang, bang, bang. They want to they want to get to the payoff, right? And so they're willing to to skip over uh, bad grammar or um, other things like that. But as for me, that shit drives me up the wall. I am I am type A. I am um, you know a perfectionist, and and as you know, Ellie, I grind over my text over and over and over again before I'm willing to let anybody look at it. Because yeah. uh, that's just that's just my creative process. You know, there's a certain amount of of leeway that's given, but if it's just totally awful and unreadable, it doesn't matter how sexy the thing is that you're describing, uh, you'll you'll lose readership as well. From what I'm understanding is, as per Jake the dog from Adventure Time, sucking at something is the first step of being kind of good at something. Exactly. That's what I tell my kids all the time about everything. You, you got to suck first, you know, crawl, you know, maybe slither on the floor a little bit and then and then maybe you can crawl and then maybe you can stumble. Being brave within whatever your creative outlet is, um, is the, the, the first step um, because it's it's kind of daunting and people can be uh, really uh, crass and mean sometimes when you're putting things out. Actually, I found that when you give something away for free, like a free book giveaway, that's generally when you get the worst reviews, which is kind of counterintuitive, but people who get stuff for free, they're the fucking meanest. <laughs> Not all of them, but but some of them tend to be. Uh, whereas if somebody pays for it, it's like they they want to like it more, I guess. I don't know. You know, it, it is what it is. It's one, it's one of those things. It's an aggregate rating. So you, you try not to, to let it bother you too much. Yeah, people, people will write the, the strangest things. I know I've, I've written some, some scientific articles and I've gotten death threats about them, like <laughs> literal death threats. Yeah, people can be oh, very gosh. unpredictable. I, I have a, a question that kind of, I think kind of goes along with it, but it's a little bit different. If you are trying to write something that goes beyond the closing the bedroom door, there's going to be people out there who say, okay, I want to write this. I can see this in my mind. I want to write this down, but they get that block. I don't know how I can go further. I'm not, I'm not feeling confident with it. This is something that people might criticize me about. This is something that people might call dirty. I'm not sure I'm comfortable expressing it. How can they kind of get over that? How do they kind of coach themselves to be more comfortable 
I don't think that there is a hard and fast way for each person. They're going to have to to, to kind of ease into it um, um, individually. But for me, I know that just fucking doing it is the only way that I've been able to get past that block. Write it down, even though it sucks, you know, something crass, like duck his D in her P or whatever, right? That gives you a base to work from so that you can revisit it later and then say, okay, well, that sucked. So even I think that that sucks. So how could I make that better, right? If it's a reticence to, to just talk to somebody else or to show that side of themselves. Um, I, I honestly, I, I really um, encourage everybody who is working within the, you know, erotic or, or smutty space to pick a pen name and not to use their real name. Um, because, you know, we're, I, I had a, a, a friend within the community uh, who said, you know, we're, we're gods in our own minds. Um, and, being able to have that kind of alter ego where you can put things out there and then not have it attached to your real identity is extremely helpful for um, getting past that, that block of saying, well, what if people, you know, don't like this or they think I'm weird. Um, no matter what your fucking kink is, though, there's somebody out there writing smut for that specific kink, you know? So you'll find your people, I promise you. Not everybody's going to understand it. I mean, I hear, I've heard you guys talking about, you know, how you talk to loved ones or friends about, like, whatever your your alternate lifestyle is. I mean, being a smart writer is kind of an alternate lifestyle, too. So uh, very few people within my, my life, a few very close friends, uh, my wife, know what I do on the side. I think, I, I think that's a big part of allowing your 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 mind to to run freely and then put it out there for public consumption good i know you mentioned the community have there been any beta readers um who have taken your work and encouraged you or kind of pushed you towards being just even a little kinkier are you fishing for a compliment ellie no, I'm not a beta reader. <laughs> well, you do. You, you do I read didn't everything say that I put out there. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm I meant in the early stages, too. Like when I asked about the fiction, you know, going over to erotica, was there some point, too, where maybe you needed to collaborate with someone to get over that tour? Yeah, that's a, that's a good that's a good question. Uh, so I had a couple of really influential beta readers when I was first writing The Money Shot. Um and they, yeah. so I wrote what I thought was, was pretty kinky and I didn't want to go too far because I was worried about the reception. Then they, they got it and they said, dude, and it was women too, which was, you know, for, for me at that time, I know better now, but I was like, God, I'm really going to like skis out these, these women. And they told me like, kick it up a notch. You, you could, you could do better than this. And I'm like, well, what do you mean? And it's like, well, uh, you could do some edging or you could do this and, you know, have not be mean to her in the middle of it. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, okay, wait, what? <laughs> so, um, that was really informative. Um, and, and, and then also if you, if you ever hang out on any of the, uh, the Facebook groups, um, where, uh, smut readers are asking for recommend or for recommendations on what books to read. There is literally every kink under the sun that's being asked for. 
somebody's always got a recommendation to say, yep, there, that's in this book. Here it is. Like, you know, go read it. That I think that was was very informative to me. And I, I wouldn't say I'm like battle hardened or anything like I've seen. I've seen everything. Uh, there are still things that like, you know, I've seen it or read in fiction. And I was like, OK, I just have to skim this passage because I'm I'm not ready for this, you know, uh, and, and, and to each their own. I think I think that's the important thing with within um, the the erotic community, erotica community is, you know, everybody's really trying not to yuck each other's yums uh, and be respectful. Uh, so that's uh, I mean, like I said, that's a good question. Um, that um, has been very informative for me as as the process has gone on um, and has really kind of encouraged me to branch out and try different stuff too. I'm going to jump in then. I'm going to ask. Earlier on in the episode, I mentioned uh, an adult fiction piece that got into the hands of some 14-year-olds. And it was a bit shocking to a follower who reached out to me. And so the question I have for you, Logan, is do you ever think about whose hands your work falls into um, or maybe even friends? Yeah. um, Well, so as a parent, you know, I I think about that a good bit, too. Um, I've got I've got three kids. And, um, you know, when it comes to that, I think for the most part, I feel fairly okay with the distribution methods that, that we have, because you have to have an Amazon account, um, and a credit card and all those things that it's a little bit harder for, a, a, um, uh, somebody who's underage to get a hold of. It might like, if, if I'm thinking about my 13 year old, if my 13 year old gets my credit card and goes and signs up for like, you know, I don't know, browsers or something like that. Is that on me or is that on browsers? Right. Um, and, and so I don't want people who are underage getting access to that. Right. That's um, a very good point. Cause the book I was mentioning was, you know, sold in bookstores. So right. are any of your books available in bookstores? No, it's, it's through online retailers only, or you could get it from me. Um, mm-hmm. I do, I do, um, sign copies and stuff like that, uh, for, anybody who wants to, but I don't have anything that's in a, that's in a bookstore like that. It can be kind of problematic for retailers to know exactly what's in every single book that they put out there. One of the things in the industry that has been popping up, especially with a lot of the main, mainstream spot is a tame cover, right? There's, there's the cover that has like the sexy guy or the girl on it. And it like, looks like people are going to be fucking. And then there's one with like a flower or something like that so that uh, people can read in public and not be called out or draw attention because of the lurid cover or something. That's brilliant, but but misleading, but misleading too. So, you know, one of the most important things to selling a book is the cover, right? Or the most important thing is the cover, um, according to popular wisdom. And then the second most important thing is the blurb. So if they, if they see the cover, they read the blurb, they buy the book, that's the, the biggest determiner for your success. You know, same thing for the cover, right? If the cover is misleading, then, and the bookstore doesn't know that that's going to be in that product, it, like I said, it's really hard for them to know exactly what's going to be. Uh, in every single uh, piece of literature, and and really, I would say that it it's incumbent on on parents if if they want to keep that stuff out of their kids' hands, they have to know what type of media their kids are are uh, are consuming too. So yep, I totally agree. 
Well, thank you so much for coming on the show today, Logan. I uh, I think there'll be an opportunity for you to return if you'd like. Yeah, for sure. Anytime. Uh, I'm not sure how um, knowledgeable I'll be on any other forms of kink that you guys talk about, but um, any anytime you guys want to have me on, I'm, I'm happy to appear. And uh, what if some of our listeners wanted just a, a little taste of Logan Black's writing? Do you think we can give them a little bit something to listen to, perhaps? Yeah, actually. So um, my my novel uh, has an audiobook version. Um, you know, I can give it's you some a- links to, to, to go find more stuff. Oh, we'll be sure to send them your way. Awesome. Thank you guys so much. Thanks for uh, thanks for coming on and uh, educating us a little bit here. Well, hey, and if anybody um, wants uh, help or you know wants to reach out, can become part of the community. I mean, they're they're more than welcome to reach out to me on Twitter. Uh, that's the primary place. That's where that's where all the writers hang out. Um, or you know, Facebook and Instagram are, are, are there too. But I'm I'm always willing to talk and to, and to help other folks. And what would be those that uh, Twitter handle? It's at uh, Logan Black Author except it's A-U-T-H-R. There's no O in the author on that because I ran out of characters. Did you really just say no O? Come on. (laughs) Ah, I softballed that when it went in there, didn't I? You did. Ellie's Ellie's so disappointed. Ellie's so She always wants her O. I do. Well, there's tons of it in my stories, just not in my hand. That's yeah, that that's fair. When we were creating, when we were creating our handle, we also ran out of characters very, very, very quickly. I, I have complaints about it, but that's from from a completely different technical side. So, well, Logan, we'll see you around on all the socials and uh, and keep listening for you for future works. Okay. All right. Thanks, you guys. Take care. So this is the part of our show where we often start slowing down towards the end and we sometimes offer some more personal stories but I actually have no stories when it comes to erotica not any really good ones I mean for me I only started reading it well into my 30s but I wondered if I could talk a little bit about arousal from print oh yeah we got to talk about that because I mean like that's the whole point right Uh uh-huh how do our listeners know that they're being aroused by the written word. I'd love for them to email us, share with us online or email us at talkingkinkwithalexandellie at gmail.com. But I'll tell you how I know. For me, my clit tingles and it swells up. Yep, I feel it in my pants, just like a man would say. And then I stretch. Literally, you'll see me reading a book or with my Kindle And I will literally stretch from the tip of my toes to my fingertips and I'll let out an audible sigh. And then a long breath that is paired with a mischievous smile as the arousals zap through my body like a tidal wave that's full of electric eels. (laughs) So this, I want to tell our listeners, this has to be the point when you listen to your body. You need to listen. It'll tell you while you're reading what it wants and what it needs. I ignored mine for most of my teens and my 20s. It was such a pity. But what do you think about that, Alex? Uh, Ellie, I have have an important question. Now, when that happens, does his husband look at you and say, ooh, big stretch? (laughs) No. He actually does one of two things. He either asks me to share it and read it out loud, or he asks me, to put the damn thing down and let's get busy. (laughs) 
okay, yeah, that's that sounds like a healthy relationship to me. <laughs> so I know that wasn't quite a story, but I wanted to share something a little more personal with our listeners. But you know who did have a story after our recording? Logan. He had a story to share. And okay. I'm going to share it with you. Yeah. Logan shared that his wife recalled the very first time smut fell into her hands. It was actually as a teenager. She remembers sneaking up into her parents' room to sneak a peek at her mom's Harlequin romance novels, just like we've mentioned earlier on this show. And she made a point of sharing. She remembers just skipping through to all the good parts. So. It's true. No matter how old you are, you're usually got this little bit of curiosity in you. Yep, absolutely. I can tell you that the book that I mentioned, Russian Bed, this is something that I mm -hmm. actually stumbled when I was 14 or 15. I can't remember exactly, but I do remember being shocked. So the book is really about a fictitious. Now, again, it was written by Eduard Topol, and it was it. He he's the only one who who wrote it, but he wrote it from a standpoint of a fictional man and a fictional woman living in the Soviet Union. The man was supposedly a producer for a, for TV shows, and he was traveling uh, through Russia and hooking up with different women and having all sorts of different stories. And it's really kind of a catalog of his sexual awakening and experience. And yep. the same thing for the female point of view where she is also trying to find herself in a very sexually conservative society. And supposedly they make a pact, the characters make a pact that they're not going to sleep with each other until they're done with the book. And then at the end, they finish up. Basically, it becomes very obvious that they hooked up after the book was fully done and they turned in their manuscript, which actually, funny enough, remind, kind of reminds me of what we're doing here in a way. <laughs> Does it? <laughs> it? In a way, it's very tangential. But the thing about this book is I remember being very shocked by it because I it, it wasn't necessarily even the content, but it, it but to an extent it was because I had never really seen something like that in print before. And I read it in the original Russian that it was written. I don't know how good the translations are, but I know the Russian was very explicit and very graphic. And again, just completely new to me. Oh, maybe Mila Kunis could do the audiobook for it. She could possibly. <laughs> Sorry, that's where my mind went. <laughs> Now, if you don't know why we reference that, because you just tuned into this episode, you want to go into the previous episode on Friends with the Benefits and listen to that, and it'll all make sense immediately. Yep. But, but here's the here's the other thing that really shocked me is how is this more effective? How is this more tantalizing than like hardcore porn that you could have seen on the web? as a millennial with broadband internet and no restrictions because the web is just this tangled mess where you could see anything that you want, even things that you probably shouldn't see. Like, how is the book better? And that's when I kind of realized the level of talent that it takes to write good erotica. So when I say that, I'm being very, very, very sincere. I say that because I was impressed. I was blown away by the talent that it takes. Yeah, and as you mentioned earlier, we've got lots of options and lots of talent out there. So it's getting late, and I think I'm going to go pick one of my favorite authors and crawl in bed with him. No, I mean, I crawl in bed with my hubby and maybe do a little bit of light reading and something else. Okay, so it's a, it's kind of a, a tr 
threesome by proxy? <laughs> yeah, yeah, a good MFM. Yeah, I love it. Well, I'm going to go ahead and start editing, I guess. <laughs> That'll be my <laughs> evening. Well, will you come back and talk with me about something else one day? Ooh, let's see. Next week, what, maybe? Yeah, what could we talk about, though? Maybe something where I have experienced that is somewhat unconventional, but also on a professional level, maybe something that has to do with love and sex and AI. And oh, here comes the sexy, nerdy scientist. And I want to chat with you. Yeah. Yeah. Let's okay. do it. Let's okay. Do it. Yeah. Works for me. But in the meantime, while you're waiting for that to drop, you can always visit TalkingKingPodcast.com. Follow us on all the socials. You can subscribe to us on Apple and Spotify and SoundCloud and Amazon Music. And so, be a part of the 1%. Don't sit in silence laughing or getting horny from our episodes. Actually, tell us what are you enjoying and what do you want to hear more about? Yeah, we want to hear from you. Amazing things happen when you become part of the 1% because guess what? You get to have an opinion and you get to have your opinion heard. And who knows? Maybe if you have some sort of a kink or fetish you really want to discuss and you are a real expert on it, we want to talk to you. Exactly. And I want to talk to you again, Alex. So till next time. Bye, Ali. Bye, everyone. Bye.